Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman. I'm going to share my thoughts on building winning teams in dynasty formats, including my philosophy on startup drafts, rookie drafts, trades, free agency, you name it. But first, now that the dust has settled on the 2022 NFL Draft, we're eventually going to examine these picks from a dynasty lens. Who were some of the safest picks in this draft class? Who are some of the riskiest? Who are the most compelling long shots? You can get all of that and more when you download the 2022 Rookie Scouting Portfolio. The pre-draft and post-draft are available right now at mattwaldman.com for the small price of $21.95. For that price, you get a 1,014-page pre-draft publication, which is a fantastic long-term reference for trades and free agency additions, which is really the backbone of your team. Then there's the 110-page post-draft that provides you a tiered cheat sheet with my sweet spot X values that gives you the range of where to maximize the value of picks based on the difference between my post-draft ranking and the ADP of more than a dozen rookie drafts that I examined after the NFL draft. You also get a monthly newsletter with that $21.95 price that gives you updates on the developing talent during the season, as well as an early look at the 2023 draft class. Again, you can find all of this at mattwaldman.com. And remember, the RSP donates a portion of its sales to Darkness to Light. During the past decade, the RSP has given over $50,000 to the organization. That's correct, over $50,000. You can learn more about D2L's excellent work to protect children at D2L.org. Today, let's focus on team building for Dynasty Leagues. Now, I used to play in a dozen leagues, maybe even more than that. At least about 10 years ago, I was probably playing in that many. Now, I'm only in about six leagues. All of them are Dynasty Leagues. Uh, four of them are IDP formats with at least 40 roster spots, so deep leagues. One of them's a Devi league. Um, I don't play in a lot of leagues anymore due to con- time commitments. Obviously, I'm focused on delivering rookie content and fantasy content and doing football analysis. Um, however, I never really liked playing in dozens of leagues because I guess it, you know I'm a competitive person by nature. So for me, it's one thing to say you've won four championships in a year when you've played in 40 formats. It's another thing to win two out of six. So the the most, you know, to me, I, I'd rather be able to say the leagues that I play in that I've done, I've done well in those leagues. Now, at the same time, let's remember, I mean, fantasy is to have fun. So if you love playing in dozens of leagues, that's awesome. Good for you. Winning's fun, but it's just a game. Competing is probably the best part of it all. Now, let's talk about philosophy and strategies. Um, I wanted, before I do that, it probably is worthwhile to share what I'm doing in my leagues, how I'm doing in those leagues, just to give you an idea of kind of the frame of reference of where I'm coming from, because the things I'm going to share with you have been successful for me. It doesn't mean it's a cure-all strategy. No single strategy is a cure-all. Fundamentally, the best thing you can do is become a good to become a good fantasy player um, in Dynasty or Redraft is to understand your strengths and weaknesses as a player when it comes to these components. Rookie drafts, startup drafts, free agencies, trades, lineup decisions. And we all have a tendency to over or underestimate our skills. Still, it's important not to vastly over or underestimate these skills. And this is something that's always been um, gauged or, or, or checked because 
how we estimate ourselves is always relative to the competition that we're facing. Now, some of the competition I face and where I've been in these past six, you know, these six leagues that I'm in, well, I'm the 2021 Football Guys IDP Dynasty Staff League champion in a league that includes a, a pretty impressive roster of guys, to be honest. You know, Sigmund Bloom, John Norton, Jeff Hasley, um, Mauro Tremblay, Aaron Rudnicki, a host of strong fantasy analysts. Those are those are five guys that, you know, I think of right off the top of my head that have always been very strong players. Um, in another IDP league I'm in, I've been in the finals three out of the past four seasons, and I won my second championship during that span in 2021. Um, I'm also the 2020 champion of the grad school league, which is a Devi league with an IDP format where the eligible player pool consists of players with less than five years of experience. That's right. Once they reach that fifth year, they're no longer eligible to be on any team. So it's all about picking youth who can produce early on and right away. This league includes the Orange Reports, Jeremy Hyde, Ryan Riddle, Char Chargers beat writer Kyle Posey, Matt Caraccio of Saturday to Sunday, and Draft Breakdown podcaster Justin Higdon. So, you know, again, an esteemed group of fantasy analysts who do great work. Um, I made the playoffs in all six leagues last year. I won at least one playoff game in each of those leagues. Of the three leagues I didn't mention, one league is in its second year. Another is was a startup in 2021. And the last league that I haven't mentioned is a team I inherited with one startable running back. Um, so as you can see, my teams are either doing very well or they're on the ascent. Um, so when it comes to knowing your strengths and weaknesses, I recommend strategies that minimize your weaknesses and leverage your strengths. Now, a lot of people will think about that and say, well, Matt, one thing that we know about you in this space is that you, you've you been known for being good at assessing running back and quarterback talent. So does that mean that you're getting, you know, you're fielding the best running backs you can and doing that? No, that's not really leveraging your strengths. Um, leveraging your strengths is really leaning on them so that you can deal with the most difficult situations with your strengths and minimizing your weaknesses is is doing something where you don't have to lean on those skills as much so for instance as i mentioned you know running back and quarterback is probably where i assess talent very well for fantasy um i and and have been known for that i don't spend a lot of time evaluating defensive players um and i play mostly in idp leagues so when I'm managing an IDP team, I tend to make known commodities a priority at the IDP positions. And I, I look at the, at the league, see which positions have the most scoring impact in that league. And in most cases, that's linebacker. Now, so what that means is that linebacker is probably one of my weaknesses when it comes to assessing talent because I just don't spend a lot of time on it right now. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I can tell you, pretty much every what every every running back who's entering the league something about them in, in great depth but linebacker I don't spend much time on so that's a weakness because I don't have I don't have the time to look at that so as a result I I minimize my weaknesses by trying to pick known commodities so if I'm in a startup draft or rookie draft if I if I'm trying to build a linebacking core I want to make sure that I get as many players as I can 
who have value, who are young or emerging or in their peak years and have another three to four years available. That's a way of minimizing my strength so that I don't need to try and get them off the waiver wire. I don't need to have to try and trade for them. I'm building players that I can kind of set it and forget it or know that I have a strength there and don't have to keep trying to evaluate that position as heavily as I do other positions. And also that position you know, there's usually you can usually start three to four linebackers, which often is a big chunk of your lineup in a lot of IDP formats. They're like the wide receivers of individual defensive players in that sense, and they're very liquid to trade. But again, knowing the value of those players, I don't feel as comfortable that as I do with offensive skill positions. So again, m- making my priority of picking up those players or building a team with strong players there first. I'd rather be weak at other positions and strong at that one. And that's a way of minimizing my weaknesses. In contrast, because I know pretty much everything about every meaningful running back entering the NFL, um, I only and I only need one to two options to produce this high-scoring squad at running back. And they have a low, um, you know, they tend to have a high turnover rate in terms of injuries, Um and, and that overall value, running back's usually my last priority in many formats and dynasty. I usually wait. And one of the reasons that I wait is that I have a philosophy of building teams where I like to stockpile positions and pinpoint those positions that are going to be anchors for my team. And sometimes the anchors for my team are not just guys who I think, you know, are Tom Brady-like, or you know a Julio Jones or somebody who can give me 10 to 15 maybe 20 years of production I mean realistically we have to understand that a long-term value in dynasty in most cases is really a player who can deliver starter fantasy value for three to five years that's probably the most realistic way of looking at it certainly there are players who deliver for eight to 12 and it's great when you can get those and you may even get 15 to 20 if you get a top quarterback I've had Tom I had Tom Brady on some teams for 10 years when I was still playing in multiple leagues um, but three to five years is probably the most realistic expectation um, now the players that have the longest windows of starter value for those three to five years, who might give you even more than that, even though you're not going to factor that in as heavily as as I make it sound, are going to be quarterbacks, tight ends, especially if you're in a 1.5 PPR league. If you're just in a non-PPR or, or a regular PPR format, tight ends may not be as valuable to you. But at least quarterbacks and receivers and in 1.5 PPR, definitely tight ends. I tend to stockpile these three positions as well as linebacker in my startup drafts. Um, and if I can generate a surplus at any of these three positions, and I often do so with two of these three, that gives me a, a foundation where I can trade for who I want at positions where I'm weaker. Or, and so that means that I can shop for the players I want. And usually that means running backs and defensive ends. So as an example, um, you know, I've talked about this in the RSP pre-draft publication often is that I had stockpiled Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, and Jared Goff in a one quarterback IDP format because I was in I had a team where I was in that middle range, you know, that range where I was too too high, you know, my my picks weren't high enough for me to get an early round pick in rookie drafts, 
but I wasn't, I was just missing out on the playoffs for the past two to three seasons. So, and I wasn't, I was in a format where people were just reluctant to trade certain players that I could really use um, that were going to help me. So I just found that I was always in the position to get a quarterback. So I would just, I would take the top quarterback, even though we could only start one. I just thought eventually if I keep hitting on quarterback, I may wind up in a situation where people are going to need a quarterback to compete in this league. And that's exactly what happened getting those, um, having those five players um, and, or four, four players, excuse me. And as a result, I was able to acquire Nick Chubb, Jonathan Taylor, and Miles Garrett based on this stockpile where I was able to get rid of Russell Wilson um, and then give up some first round picks or a combination of picks. And I ended up with Chubb, Taylor, and Miles Garrett on my team. And I even won a championship without any of those guys um, the first time around. But then, the you know, in the second time and in the past couple of years where I've been in the championship round, it was because I was able to leverage a player that I didn't need for players that I actually um, could use to really fortify my lineup. So I've found, I've even done this with, tight ends, you know, and I've gotten Chubb and Amari Cooper after stockpiling tight ends in a 1.5 PPR format. So I find that that's very important um, because at the end of the, at the end of it, I know that because I can survive with running back, you know, oftentimes you only need one running back if you have a strong squad elsewhere. If you know you can survive on a position or two based on your expertise with finding guys off the waiver wire, or you know, line good in using good lineup decisions with players who may not be rated in the top twenty each week as players who are going to produce, but you're going to get them. You can find those players who are below those rankings off the waiver wire, usually for pennies on the dollar, and get some points out of them. I find that I can still maintain a competitive team or build my team um, and roll with that until it's time for me to be at a point where I know if I get these running backs, that's the final piece to my puzzle. I find that that's a very helpful way to go. Um, So with rookie drafts, stockpiling just also allows me to be more open to getting the best player available. You know, um, there are, you know, I can shop for who I want as opposed to hope to have somebody fall to me that I find acceptable. Um, so with rookie drafts, you know, again, this can, you know, this is how I do it. Doesn't mean it's the best way or it's the cure all, you know, to me, um, you know, the, the idea that, um, the idea that there's one way to, to do this, I mean, that sells subscriptions that gets followers, that type of thing, but it's, you know, I've come up, I've come up with. Um, strategies. I've shared strategies. I've been one to um, talk about different ways of of approaching drafts, um, but there's no single way. And I find that you know it's important to understand that heading into. So for me, when it comes to rookie drafts, I generally only trade picks when I'm in a win now window. Um, you know, I want players who I, I I like to make trades when I'm getting players who can help me immediately. Usually that means that I'm thinking they I can either win this year because I'm making a trade for that player, 
or they're going to help me this year and at least next year. If I think I've got acquiring that player is going to do that for me, then I'm probably going to make a trade. I rarely trade future picks away. If I do, I'm trying to keep my first and second round picks. I find that that's, you know, when people can stockpile first and second round picks, you can make, you can win very quickly that way. Um, and you see that people will will tank and try and load up on first and second round picks, dominate the draft, and and try and build a winner that way. If your league allows that, that's fine. Um, and you know it's a viable strategy. There's guys who are competing with me now who who were trying who basically dominated their drafts because they tanked for the past cup for like two to three years, accumulated enough picks that they were able to finally get enough players who were worthwhile to them. Um, me personally, as a someone who likes to compete every year and try to win every year, um, I it, that just goes against my ethos for how you compete in leagues. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just a personal decision for me. I like to try and win every year, even if the odds are stacked against me. Um, so the idea of giving up to to dominate the next year, it just it it just doesn't sit right with me personally. Um, if I'm in a rebuild situation, um, I will trade older veterans for future picks. Um, I try to do this during the middle of the season where players are coveted the most. Um, I don't like to trade during rookie drafts. I think people can tend to be swayed too much by emotion and and people don't really have a good valuation or assessment of them of their teams or their talent when they're trading during the draft um it's kind of like um negotiating a car in the dealership after they have you wait in a room for you, you know forever you know there's a I think there's even a thing with doctors and philosophies there. I bet that there's a psychological thing of that they have you wait long enough that you're more agreeable to just to try and get out of the room. Um, so, you know, if I, you know, and I guess what I mean by that with doctors is that maybe you're more amenable to some, some things that they suggest and question them less, um, which, you know, again, I mean, they're experts at what they do, but, you know, I like making fun of my buddy Gene Bramble. So anyway... I, you know, in terms of options for rookie drafts at the top of my board, I like safe options. Doesn't mean I'm always going to take the safest option, but I like to recommend players who I think have the longest potential, the best long-term potential to be solid starters. You know, that's why I probably gravitate towards the Chris Olaves over the Garrett Wilsons or even the top running backs at, on what I've shared. Um, because many people will view first-round picks as, if I have a top first-round pick, I need to take a chance on the superstar. I need to get the superstar. You, you know, Well, you don't know who the superstar is going to be. And many people thought that you know, Keenan Allen, Robert Woods, A.J. Brown, Cooper Cup, and Chris Godwin, they weren't seen as future superstars. They were just seen as like, yeah, they're going to maybe they'll become solid players. But all those players I mentioned have been better than most of the players picked well before them who were viewed as high upside guys. Some of them like Cup or guy I didn't mention, Justin Jefferson, have proven to be superstar caliber producers. So, for me, you know, 
try not I don't try to hit the bullseye in the you know in the first round. I try to hit the target. And may or maybe a better analogy is I try to hit the bullseye in the first round, but I try to do it with a target that doesn't have me trying to shoot the arrow um you know through a hole in an apple on the top of a person's head who is standing between me and the bullseye on the target. You know, that's that's where I think some people go wrong when it comes to rookie drafts is that they they look at a Garrett Wilson and think of all the things he does wonderfully in the open field and what he can and some of the high impact plays but they ignore some of the fundamental things that can be missing with the player. It doesn't mean Garrett Wilson isn't going to be a good player, but you know, when I'm looking at players, the players who have the highest floors as well as a high ceiling, I'd rather have them than the guys who have an equally high ceiling but a much lower a much lower floor or even a slightly lower floor. So, that's why, you know, I've started to gravitate more towards the Olaves, the Godwins, the Browns, the Woodses, you know, the Allens when it comes to early round picks. Um, as far as waivers are concerned, I like to maintain a list of players I'm monitoring as potential waiver wire picks. I try to pick players one to three weeks before they have a shot to see extended playing time. This way I can get them on you know, a first-come, first-served basis in a lot of leagues where there's little to no money spent. And I can, use that in, I can use that to my advantage if their value inflates due to a good week. I can trade them if necessary as a part of a throw-in to a deal that involves established options as a little bit of a sweetener. Or if that player becomes a hot value, big, you know, hot enough value that people want them as a standalone option. I don't like spending a high percentage of money on a single player. Um, I've done this in the past, but I found it's too hit or miss of a proposition. If you're if you're really good at trading players, then it's probably not a huge deal, and you can take this chance. A guy like Sigmund Bloom, he he's the type of guy as an owner that he does a very good job of constantly rebuilding his team. He doesn't have many set opinions on one player or two players. If he does, they're usually high-end athletes. They tend to be the the Kyle Pitts of the worlds and players like that. But he's also very quick to come off his mistakes because the strength of a guy like Bloom, who I've known for a long time, is that like a fantasy, the strength of him as a fantasy analyst is he takes a lot of information. Um, from outside sources and synthesizes it in with his own point of view and and is be able to create um, you know some ideas and strategies around that and apply that and he's very flexible so his flexibility allows him to you know when he makes a mistake he comes off that mistake very quickly and he doesn't he doesn't maintain a lot of patience with players he tends to to continue to you know, shape and mold his team a lot throughout the season. What he may think in June is going to be radically different to what he thinks in December. In fact, what he thinks in September is often radically different from what he sees in December. And that's that works for him very well because he's active. He makes the time, has the time, likes to get involved in all the wheeling and dealing, and he's very active on the waiver wire. Now, I'm very active on the waiver wire, 
but I like to hold players a little bit longer. I'm a little more patient with the players that I have. I also tend to study players and have my own opinions about them outside of anybody else. So me and Bloom are on the opposite poles of how we approach teams oftentimes because he's looking at the landscape of every opinion and forming his own. I'm studying players on my own and not looking at anybody's anybody else's opinion um and so we can often get to the same place but in different means um so i find that if i can be my strength is being ahead of the game on players if i can be ahead of the game on players um and get them and then i can leverage my strengths that way um and that means also making smaller deals where you know I know I'm good at at setting lineups. So rather than trying to spend a high percentage of money on a single player that's hit or miss, um, I tend to be among the better owners at lineup decisions. So giving myself the most options every week is, is a resource for my strength. So I'm better at being able to shore up small holes in my lineup with a, a running back or a wide receiver four or a tight end or you know a, a defensive back um, who can give me high a high score beyond what people expected for a week or two based on a matchup and so that helps me out because that means that I'm leveraging my strengths again um, and that's that's better than betting the house on a player and not having those resources and then when it's you know, and then when I do spend those resources, it's usually, you know, to instead of trying to hit the home run on Josh Gordon every year, you know, I've made that mistake in the past. Um, I'd rather, I know that I can spend a moderate amount of money on a couple of players who will give me that long-term value, that potential at long-term value. Um, and usually I do it later in the season in the you know after the halfway point after people have blown all their money and i can still pick up a quality player who helps me out they may not be a superstar but they often are a good starter like a charles harris a, a defensive and linebacker who you know after the first four to five weeks it became clear he was going to be in uh you know an asset you know you can pick someone like him up and actually be worthwhile to your team um trades um, as I mentioned, stockpiling helps. I want to have the resources to get the players I want. So I generally don't trade until late in the preseason or the middle of the season. One is because the late in the preseason, I have a, the best idea of what to expect from certain players. Most people are trying to trade players who are unproven, and the preseason gives you at least an opportunity to see whether or not um, it's worth making that deal doesn't always happen that way but at that point that's usually when um, you can take advantage of the buzz to get a player or the lack of buzz to get a player um, and you know use that to your advantage um, the other thing is my middle of the season is really good because my trading partners are usually behaving the most realistically about their team and team needs you know, if sometimes you have teams that feel like they can win now um, and they need a player, 
But the idea of trading for a veteran in June, they think, well, let me wait and see whether this rookie is going to take off. So they don't really want to make the deal because that, that older player is less attractive to them. But when it comes to November and suddenly they're in a situation where they could win their division and have a first round bye and they don't ha- that young player isn't doing anything for them, now they're being realistic and they need that veteran. And you can be in a more amenable situation to trade, trade that player away. So the same thing with future picks and things like that. Teams kind of, you know, opponents have a better idea of what they, um, you know, what their team is. Um, I try to make fair deals. Um, I don't mind overpaying a bit for players if I truly think they'll give me a chance to win in the league right now um, or within the next year. Um, but I don't try to cheat people. And, you know, maybe a, a nicer way of saying that because we're not always trying to cheat. People aren't always trying to cheat people. But some people will ask for something that they don't think will realistically happen with the hope that someone will just say yes. Um, and that can work out. Um, certainly it can. They will put things out there that they, 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 they want the person to say no. It doesn't hurt to ask. Let them say no. I'm good with that um, to an extent, but I find that long-term people don't think in those lines. They see a trade offer and their reaction is, this person's trying to cheat me or this person is making an idiotic offer um, as opposed to them thinking this person's you know, strategically leading in with something for us to have a negotiation with. And then we ne- and then negotiate there because most people don't know how to negotiate. Most people think they do. Um, most people don't. Trust me, as I've shared a number of times, my wife, Alicia, is a negotiator for a living. Um, deals with literally, I believe it is, if I have the right number, $600 million in spend for one of the largest construction companies in the world. She knows how to negotiate. Okay, I don't know how to negotiate r- remotely relative to her. But what she has shared with me and what I've seen just in our personal lives when it comes to buying a house, buying a car, negotiating services. Um, My wife is excellent at those things. And part of that is understanding how to set the table for a negotiation, how to deal with people, um, you know, how to ask for what you want, how to say no to things that they ask for. Um, All those things matter. And, you know, just a small example of that with a trade is how you lead in with people. You know, you can ask for what you want and get the big win, but long-term, if you're going to be in a dynasty league long-term, you don't want to have the reputation of being the guy that nobody wants to deal with because your your offers are just silly. You know, there's, there's a league that I joined um, in the past where I was literally informed about, and, I, and this happens often, I'm literally informed about um, owners who are just not, cool to trade with like that they suck to trade with that they the deals that they make are just awful and they just try and take advantage of people and get worn that way now that may be that they're they're just trying to lead in and have a conversation Um, but if that's the first impression 
that new um, you know team managers get of their competition, um, you know that colors your idea of who you're dealing with and how you're going to deal with them. And that's generally what happens. You don't want to have that reputation when you're trying to make deals. You want people to think that what you're offering is more than fair. And sometimes people will be very cautious because I'm in a league where I think a lot of the owners are cautious right now because there's a guy who has that reputation. And I got into the league and and they're, they're wanting to see whether I'm going to make fair deals. So a lot of the trades I've offered are fair deals and my my real win is just to get them to say that's a fair deal but no thanks and they're just scared to make the deal so eventually if i keep making fair deals right off the bat they're going to feel more amenable to doing that with me but it might take some time it might take a season or two before they warm up to to making a deal and as opposed to me sitting there and saying oh well nobody wants to make a deal with me so you know things like that are kind of worthwhile to understand is try and lead in with a fair deal and and become known for that because each deal sets up the next deal. It's not just about one deal at a time. You know, if you can show people that you're easy to work with, they're more likely to work with you, and they're more likely to give you the benefit of a doubt if a deal is kind of close and they're not sure what to do. If they feel like you've been more than fair with them, they're more apt to pull the trigger on something that they don't feel quite good about. And remember, the best trades are often the trades where you don't feel like you absolutely won the deal. You know, sometimes the best trades are you feel a little uneasy giving up what you gave up. You know, um, you know. Now, if you're in a situation, and that's usually, you know, that's not all the time. Some trades I make, I feel like I absolutely won it, even though I gave up a fair amount. I felt like I had to do this to be in a win now situation. You know, I had to give up a couple of first round picks to get Jonathan Taylor. Well, that was worth it to me, you know, but, but, you know, sometimes you feel uneasy about having to give up what you give up to get what you get. And, and the other side's going to feel that way too. So if they feel like you are dealing with them in good faith and that you've done that in the past, it's going to psychologically help them you know, pull the trigger on that. So those are some of my ideas in terms of what I look at with Dynasty Leagues, my philosophy with, you know, anchor players, where I leverage strengths, minim, you know, leverage, leverage my strengths and minimize my weaknesses, how I like to approach trading, how I like to approach the waiver wire, you know, things on that nature, how I value, you know, draft picks. So in the coming weeks, um, I might start looking at some players who, you know, who are safe, who are riskiest, who are long shots. We'll talk about some of them. Um, I'm going to have guests like Russ Landy um, joining me again. We're going to probably restart up our, um, you know, our scout talks on a more regular basis. Um, and you should be looking for some YouTube info as well. The RSP di- um, Dynasty Complete Dynasty Rankings and Projections are going to be available. Um, sometime in mid-June, um, I'll be working on those. I'm taking about a week or two off after a um, pretty busy draft and regular season fantasy period. Um, you know, so I'm taking a little bit of time off right now. Um, but I'll be I'll be back doing the podcast on a regular basis, um, as well as a lot more YouTube work 
and you can find you know you can find all of that at mountwaldmanrsp.com you can get the rsp at mountwaldman.com thank you for listening i hope you found this worthwhile if you did rate and review that's always helpful thanks again